This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do, this guy can do. Welcome back to the Can Do Podcast. This is your host, Bill Duncliffe. Thanks for joining us for another episode with heroes and history and some hijinks of horse racing come alive. When we speak about heroic performances in horse racing, some of the names that trip off the tongue are horses like Secretariat, American Pharaoh, and Zenyatta. I'm sure others will come to your mind, but I think we can generally agree that Triple Crown winners are always going to attract their fair share of fame and glory, given the difficulty of that feat for a still-developing three-year-old. And of course, a long winning streak racing against the top talent in the sport stretching over multiple years is one that is also going to attract the attention of even those who rarely or only casually follow the sport. Long enough, and it will make its way, all too rarely, onto the front page of the sports section of your local paper and will, as you will soon hear, gather the roaring, full-throated excitement of a racetrack crowd normally known for its California cool style. I was introduced to Jerry Bailey by this season's earlier guest, Morty Mittenthal. Years ago, they were responsible for producing Jerry's Inside Track handicapping videos. Jerry graciously agreed to share his perspectives on the amazing winning streak of Cigar, who reeled off 16 straight victories from 1994 through 1996, including 10 Grade 1 races along with an incredibly stirring Dubai World Cup effort. Going into this interview with Jerry, I was expecting and hoping to be given some insights and information that I had not seen or heard in other places. As you will soon hear, I got all of that and more. And added bonus, we were able to trade some very funny anecdotes about one of Jerry's greatest, if not most improbable, victories. So, like Cigar carrying an extra 18 or so pounds, take your COVID-inspired weight gain, sit down with us, and enjoy the recollections of a memorable journey with Jerry Bailey and Cigar. This snippet from our discussion actually came at the very end of our call. I was so struck by it, its honesty, and its testament to the heights and the love to which others can steer us. What you're about to hear really is a love story. Listen, I want to tell you something, and, and you might want to use this in the beginning, and you may not want to use it because I know you're limited on time and, and, and podcasts need to be kept a certain amount, but Cigar is the horse that made me fall in love with horses. I will tell you that. Because I grew up as a kid with horses at, at our house in Texas, and I just wanted to go fast on horses. You know, find another kid on a horse and go fast. And I wanted to be a football player. I didn't want to be a jockey. I wanted to be a football player, an athlete. So horses ended up being a means to an end for me to compete because I was too little to do any of the other sports. And that's the way I treated them for the first, until cigar. I mean, it was a doctor-patient relationship. Ride them, get off of them, go to the next fast one. No rapport really passed, you know, the paddock to the gate. Yeah. Um, but with cigar, he was not only really good, he was really cool. And he had a lot of charisma. And I used to just hang around the barn so I could be around him. So when you ask me, when did I know there was something special about him? I knew after I rode him a couple of times, there was something special about the horse to the extent that I would stay around for an extra hour or two every morning and just go back to the barn and hang out with the horse. Oh my gosh. And I was the kind of guy that get on him, ride him and get off him. I'm, I'm out of here. 
So, yeah, he was the horse that made me fall in love with horses. For a horse who achieved such well-deserved fame, Cigar's career started out somewhat ignobly, garnering a fair amount of success, but at the same time also proving to be what many felt was an underachieving puzzlement. So, uh, Jerry, you mentioned when we talked earlier that you weren't sure of the reasons why Cigar ended up shifting from the West Coast to the East Coast, but for those unfamiliar with Cigar, other than the winning streak, I think a, a little background is worth noting. Um, he was unraced as a two-year-old, uh, raced out in California, uh, and he wasn't bad at all. He had nine starts out there, two wins. Uh, he was second and third in Allowance Company. He ran second and third in grade threes at Bay Meadows in Hollywood Park, although he was badly defeated at, in the Hollywood Derby to close out his three-year-old season. And he actually broke his maiden on dirt before they switched him to turf. But So now we, you know, we kind of come into his four-year-old season. He takes six months off, um, comes to Bill Mott, and he stayed on the turf initially on the East Coast also. You actually, in doing my research, you picked up his third star in the East Coast. Um, he was kind of wide, badly beaten seventh. Uh, he had been favored off of a tough trip, trip in an earlier race. Did you sense anything at all about the horse at that point, or was this just uh, another ride to you, you know, an, another horse on another ride? If he didn't end up being what he ended up, and I wasn't looking at a past performance sheet on Cigar, I would have never remembered I rode him in that grass race. Okay. That's how okay. that's how uninspiring, you know, that, that race was. But I, I did, you know, like in, in the weeks and months, you know, after that before I actually got on him in the fall, there was a lot of discussion around the barn. I, I didn't write a lot for Belmont then. Um, but there was discussion that he wasn't fulfilling his potential. That he thought okay. that Bill thought he was a better horse than what he was showing. So so that much I, I did know. Okay. Okay. And so you didn't, was there any talk then at that time about maybe we should switch him back to dirt or just that he wasn't, just for whatever reason, wasn't fulfilling his potential? If there was, I wasn't privy to it. I mean, I didn't ride a lot for Bill Mott prior to Cigar mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Um, so I wasn't, it wasn't like I was riding other horses there. So I was around the barn okay. and I heard conversation. I, I just wasn't there. So uh, I wouldn't have heard anything had there been discussion. But, as trainer Bill Mott is wont to do, especially when given time and perspective, in Cigar's four-year-old season, he began to figure the horse out. And there's an interesting backstory along the way about how Jerry ended up getting on Cigar's back. We finally get to the fall anyway, and his, his winning streak gets started. He, he wins a non-winners of two, other than allowance win on the dirt at Aqueduct, and he romped by eight, actually, with, with Mike Smith up. And uh, I would imagine that's probably what inspired Bill to enter him in what is now called the Cigar Mile, which is then the Naira Mile. But... You picked up that ride because Mike, understandably at that point, chose to ride Devil His Due versus riding Cigar, right? Yeah, so there's some backstory to this. Um, there was conversation because Bill Mott kept switching riders. I, I rode him. I think Julie Crone rode him. Yes. Uh, maybe even Mike. But it was like a, a, a musical jockey <laughs> chairs on, on this horse for the several races, you know, uh, leading up to the fall where he won the allowance race and the, and the Naira mile. And so I was talking, Mike and I, Mike Smith and I are pretty good friends and we were talking in the jocks room and he mentioned to me, because there was some talk about this horse, that he was going to run at the Meadowlands. And I believe it was the Meadowlands. I'm not looking at the past performance. Maybe you are. But, um, and so he said, did you, or maybe it was Aqueduct and I went I to the Meadowlands. I, yeah. I, I, I think it was Aqueduct. I think it was Aqueduct. But go ahead. Yeah. So, so he 
the next day, he asked me, maybe I was, maybe I was at the Meadowland, and he said, did you see that allowance race by that horse cigar? And I said, no, I didn't see it. I was, maybe it was, I was riding at the Meadowland. He said, he like, he ran off the screen, he won by so many. I said, really? And he said, yeah, because we had talked about, you know, lot changing riders mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, just trying to, trying to find anything to solve the issue of why is Cigar not running like he's supposed to be running. So he said, yeah, he put him on the dirt and I, and I rode him and he, he won like for, like, like, you wouldn't even believe it. He ran off the screen he won by so far. So I went and watched the rerun and he was right. He mm -hmm. won very impressively. So it was in my mind when my agent came to me and said, Bill Mott's going to need a rider for this horse cigar because Mike Smith's committed to Alan Jerkins' horse, Devil mm -hmm. of Duke. And I said, take him out, take him out, okay. because he was meant to be a good horse, apparently, and Mike told me he was very impressive in a lot race win. So that much I do remember pretty clearly. Now, do you ever, uh, when you talk to Mike Smith, I suppose he's made up for it with uh, Zenyatta, right? But do you ever kid him about, uh, Mike, you could have had cigar also, or do you just kind of let that one go? Well, that'll play out in a little bit in our conversation. So, oh, okay. Uh, okay, good, good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sometimes we racing fans, or maybe just this racing fan, imagine the trainers and jockeys are furiously exchanging thoughts on strategy and tactics during the pre-race paddock saddling process. I suspect there are more times where, like this, it's more like, hey, go out there and let's see what happens. Now, in the in Naira Mile, uh, Mike, uh, Devil is Do ended up carrying Mike in, in 124. You got... In a, at at one eleven, but I, I almost want to say he he ran them off his feet again, right? I ran them off their feet again at uh, at, at almost nine to one. Uh, do do you, did you have any plan going into the race uh, as far as how to run them, or were you just you know kind of figure told to kind of figure it out as you went along in there? Had no idea, and I don't think Bill was there. Okay, oh really? Um, okay, I, I think it was Kenny, the assistant trainer could have been Kenny McCarthy, but uh, they never said too much to me in the paddock anyway. Um, but it, there was no big, big plan. It's a flat mile, so I think he drew um, fairly far out into the into the field. But it was like, listen, a flat mile at Aqueduct, you get so much time to do whatever you want before you hit the turn. So there's never really, you know, any pressing issue that you have to, to strategize for the first part of the race. Um, but I do remember, I mean, I used my little saddle. Mm -hmm. um, I was overweight. I think I was a couple pounds overweight because he got in so light. So okay. maybe he was carrying 13 or something like that. But he, he was just unbelievably impressive again. So things now began to get serious as Cigar ships south to the warmer climes of South Florida, preparing to meet the great Holy Bull in the Dawn Handicap. Along the way, Jerry shared an interesting insight into Cigar's capabilities, a real testament to Bill Mott's renowned horsemanship. You know, like everyone in New York at that time, you and Cigar and Bill Mott and everyone went south for the the winter and one of the things that struck right. me is first of all um <laughs> you very rarely see a non-winners of four allowance race anymore um but i remember talking with nick zito about these higher level allowance races when we talked about birdstone and his winter before the um the belmont and uh, was that kind of intended as just a acclimatization race kind of get him back on the track and 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 see what we got um uh, not, not, not throw him into stakes company right away. Well, Mott's pretty conservative and Holy Bull, Holy Bull was sitting out there waiting for the next race. So I think he wanted, you know, a, a distance race in the horse, um, that would, you know, that would serve as a tune up, but Bill Mott trains him. He's such a good horse trainer that they might be the best off the bench with him. 
I mean, he gets them so ready that they don't run a lot better having had one race under the belt from a layoff. So, okay. you know, it, I think it was more just to, to get a, a, a race and get him going. And, uh, and there was probably no stake at the time. Well, like you said, Holy Bull was out there, and now, uh, you know, we come up to the, the Dawn Handicap, and, right. and that actually ended up being Holy Bull's last race. Um, he was pulled up, actually. You were not favored then, but were you very confident going into it? Oh, I couldn't wait for it. I, I, could, I didn't know if oh, I could wow. beat him, okay. but, I, but I thought I could. Uh, okay. and, and Mike and I had a conversation because after the, uh, um, after the allowance race, I mean, after the, uh, the Naira mile, he said, man, he said, I wish I could have stayed on that horse. So as we go forward to the next year, you know, he had Holy Bull anyway. And I said, look, you got Holy Bull anyway. So, you know, you weren't going to be able to ride this horse even in, in, you know, in this race in the Don Handicap, I believe it was. Um, but no, no, I, I, I was very confident. As a matter of fact, when the gate opened, I wanted to take it right to an right to Holy Bull, and that's the way it developed going in the first turn. We both went at it. Head and head. Yeah, and he he actually ended up getting getting pulled up out of the race. Like right. I said, that was his When his we last turned race, down right? the backside, I heard a loud pop, like a branch breaking. And I could, I could hear Mike Smith say, oh, God. And then I looked oh, over my shoulder, and I could see nothing. And, and two minutes, I mean, two seconds before that, cigar, I mean, uh, Holy Bull was there. Right. So I right. knew that right. he probably injured himself. Um, my worry then was we were going pretty fast going that first turn, and that was the plan because it was basically a two-horse race. Now it wasn't a two-horse race anymore, and I'm going, I'm flying the first part of it, and now I've got to try and slow him down because I don't want him to, you know, run suicidal fractions and, and set it up for some closure. Uh, but anyway, he ended up winning fairly, fairly easy. You know, Jerry, that raises a good question. I sometimes wonder, you know, horses end up getting hustled to the lead for a variety of reasons, and, and, and many times they're very good. But it, it must be, I, I imagine it, it must be hard to slow them down once if you've hustled them out there, oh, too, right? Most it, of it is, yeah. 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 That was my concern at that very moment, that I had, I had turned on the engine, and, and this is a horse that he wants to be in front all the time, and it's, it's, it's up. It was up to me to keep him off the lead. He was basically just a really brilliant miler that, that Bill Mott got out to stretch out to a mile and a quarter. So speed was no oh, problem. Wow. It was trying to harness okay. that speed and make it last. I love puns, as long-time listeners already know, so I hope you can appreciate the effort it has taken for me to refrain from connecting the words cigar and smoking to this point, and I will continue to do so. But I dare say cigar was certainly getting hot at this point. While cigar was burning up the track... There I go again. Of course, sadly, the end of the line came for another great. But there was also an interesting not-quite-aside Jerry shared about Cigar at this point in his winning streak. So, you know, he's got the dawn under his belt now, and now he's really starting to roll. I looked at the uh, uh, comments, the, the the charts for the Gulfstream Park Handicap, and you very rarely will see the comment, uh, as rider pleased, but that, that's what he got um, in the Gulfstream Park Handicap. He won at Oaklawn, uh, again, seemingly, anyway, with these. I'm sure you never think I'm going to win a bunch of races in a row, but at what point had you started to think I'm on something pretty special here? Or, or had you started to think that yet? Uh, I, thought it, I thought it going into the, the Don Handicap with Holy Bull. That's the reason I took it to him early. Uh, but if, if you hold on for just a second. Now, going into the Oakland race, now he had won the Don and he would won the Gulfstream Park Handicap. Now, four, four days before the Oakland race, the Oakland Handicap, I got kicked in the chest by a horse that I was riding in the at, at Keeneland in Kentucky. So I didn't even think I was going to ride him that weekend. 
And so I went and got x-rays, and they were negative. So I just I packed my, myself in ice and slept in ice uh, Wednesday night and stayed in ice uh, most of Thursday. I rode Keeneland on Friday, and Bill Martin had, I had, a, had a conversation. He said, look, if you ride Friday and you think you're okay to ride on Saturday, it's fine. I won't change riders. You just tell me what you think. And so I rode Friday, and, and I could ride, but I was no help. So what he did in the Oakland Handicap got very little help from me. Oh, wow. 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 That's really, you don't, you don't hear some of these backstories about packing yourself in ice for two or three nights before a race just to get ready. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. So now it was obvious to everyone that this horse was reaching that rarefied category of becoming a special horse. I'm always interested though in what it is that makes each special horse special because I think they all tend to be special in their own special way. So, you know, obviously you thought he was a special horse and he clearly in this Oakland performance told you he was a special horse, but I kind of believe that, and, and I don't know, so I, I, I'm asking, um, special horses have different ways of telling their owners, their, their trainers, their jockeys that they're special. Is, is that the case, number one? And what, How did Cigar tell you that he was special, I guess? Because he would just run horses off their feet. He had such a high cruising speed that horses would feel defeated you know, on the far turn, way before you got to, like, middle of the stretch when it's head and head, and then a fan could visibly see a horse retreating from that duel. So, so some of those horses get beat before you even turn for home. And because, look, at horses like Cigar, and, and there's, they're sprinkled throughout history with, with really good horses, have such a high cruising speed that they're, they're, they're going that fast well within themselves. Easily. And other horses are just struggling to keep up. So even though they stay head and head or neck and neck uh, until they turn for home or till the middle of the stretch, they know they're beat way before that. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's something you're sensing. You're, you're in the pack, and you're sensing it on the back stretch even, that I, I've, I've got this, or he's, 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 under, he's on cruise control. Yeah, and, and look, he, break, he broke so well, and he had such early speed that he would get me out of any possible traffic scenario that there could ever develop. Oh, my. Wow. So, you know, so for a rider, that, that was like gold. Yeah, that's got to be a great feeling to get on a horse like that and know that he can he can do whatever you need him to do. Um, and you know, Yeah, like because say, there's so many good horses that, that, let's say, come from fairly far behind, mm-hmm. and they, their first step out of the gate might not be good, and then they need to have some racing luck to get through the, the, you know, the pack, and they can't really afford to go too wide and still win. Wow. Do you think he was one of those cases like, you know, I know when they autopsied Secretariat, his heart was twice as large as normal. Do you think that there's, how much of it do you think is mental versus how much of it is physiological, or if that's fair to ask? Gosh, I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of not an expert on that. All, all I know Neither is, I. is, is <laughs> yeah. that he did things so much easier than most horses, uh, and, and therefore, that's why I say he, he beat them before they got to the top of the stretch a lot of times. It's well worth keeping in mind that all of this was blooming as Cigar was in the midst of his four-year-old year, a time, unfortunately, when many top-quality horses have been packed off to the breeding shed. It's an ongoing debate in this sport about the dynamics of the breeding business versus the benefits of the growth of the sport. It's well worth contemplating what some of those top bloodlines might accomplish if they were to stay on the track an extra season or two. And, you know, Jerry, it's interesting. He's accomplishing this now in his four-year-old year, and, and you and I kind of converse back and forth via email um, a little bit prior to this. And I always tell people that ask me about the sport, don't know a whole lot about the sport, that uh, many horses it takes until their four- or five-year-old year to shine. But, of course, now 
you know, an accomplished two-year-old, an accomplished three-year-old or even an accomplished two-year-old gets sent off to the breeding shed. I, how much, if any, do you think the sport has been hurt by this focus on the breeding shed as opposed to developing the stars in the, in the public's eye? A lot. It's that the breeding, the, the breeding is important, obviously. Our breeders are, are extremely important to our game. But it has, the tail is now lagging the dog, if you, in, in a sense, because horses that the public can identify with, typically at three, because, the, you know, the big races in the Triple Crown, that's what fringe people, fringe horse racing fans watch most. They watch three days a year in this the Derby, Preakness, and Belmont, and they might tune in for the Breeders' Cup. So mm-hmm. let's say four. And they get to know these horses at three. So when they're not around at four and five, these fans have to reassociate with other horses. Uh, you know, it's, it's like taking Michael Jordan and, and retiring him after his first NBA championship. That's a good analogy. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, they don't, have, they don't carry their fan base. And so when you do get the rare instance, um, of horses returning at four and sometimes even rarer at five, um, then it, it's great for the sport. But I understand because they're they're so valuable that these breeders can't take the chance. Yeah, yeah, the money. I mean, I don't think talks. I don't like it, but I understand it. I, I think most horse racing fans feel that way, and I think you put it good. You don't like it, you understand it. It makes economic sense, but it it does work to the to the detriment of the sport and kind of building a. Uh, a continuing fan base, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at Zenyatta. <laughs> exactly. She transcended exactly. sports. She had. Yeah. She transcended racing. Yeah. Oh. She transcended the sports world, actually. Yo, think about how many people watched that race with blame that had really no interest yeah. in horse racing, but they knew about, you know, this this horse and this showdown. Uh, you know, um, yeah. The girl against the boys, and she had yeah. been around, and look what she'd done already, and yeah, exactly. Pimlico Special, Mass Cap, Hollywood Gold Cup, Woodward Jockey Club Gold Cup. The Cigar Victory Train would not be stopped. Coast to coast travel be damned. So, so uh, back to Cigar. He, you know, so now he's beating horses like Best Pal, Devil Is Due, Kissing Chris, whose, whose name will come up later also. Um, and, and, you know, he goes to the Mass Handicap up here in my home area here of Boston. He, he dominates the short field. He he goes out west in the Hollywood Gold Cup and beats Best Pal, Tinner's Way, Concern. West Coast was not a problem for him. Uh, took a little time off. Comes back in the Fall Classics, and although there were short fields at Woodward in, in the Woodward and the Gold Cup, there were accomplished horses in there. Star Standard, uh, Unaccounted for, Thunder Gulch, and these were not uh, Palooka fields that he was beating in the in those races. Yeah, you know, look, look at if you look back historically now, you know, you realize they were pretty good horses, especially compared to, to some of the watered-down stakes that we have now because there's just not enough good horses to go around. Um, he, yeah, he was, he was just completely dominant, so there's not going to be, you know, the horses weren't lining up to run against him in those particular No, races. they were not. There, yeah. were other options. Yeah. there were other options for them, you know, leading up to the Breeders' Cup. But he was, he was just totally dominant in the fall. You know how they say looks can be deceiving? We all remember Tom Durkin's stirring call of cigars Breeders' Cup Classic victory at Belmont Park. As easily as those words tripped off of Tom's tongue, though, they belied the difficulties Jerry encountered in steering cigar into the winner's circle that day. And actually, I think it's reflected in the ride when you watch it, ultra-confident in the Classic, because, you know, you took him four wide around the turn. I counted maybe one or two strikes with the whip, um, and you look back mid-stretch, I think 
just to make sure there was nothing else coming. But but I think you felt pretty confident at that point that n- nobody was going to get to him. Yeah, that's a little better race than people think because it's it's very hard to win at a mile and a quarter at Belmont from an outside post because you're automatically giving up ground as soon as you break because you're breaking on a turn. And first of all, it was muddy, and he never that was a question mark for him. Um, of course, it's not looking back, but it was at the time. So, you know, here's the horse I told you wanted really, he wanted to be on the lead every jump of every race. It was up to Bill to train that out of him and, and try and try and relax him a little bit and me to keep him off the lead. Uh, and, and Mott does a great job of relaxing horses, but this horse, he was just so superior in form at that time that that was a tough job to do. So I usually left the gate with a pretty snug hold on him. I couldn't do that in the, in the classic because he was in post 10. I had to run him, let him run at least at 30 or 40 yards out of there just to move left and get over so I wasn't seven wide uh, around the entire first turn. You know, to me, three or four wide would have been a, a victory. So, indeed, I had, to, I had to light the fire a little bit when the gate opened just so he, you know, got forward and got over. And it, it wasn't much, and he locked on to me. And I was water skiing. I mean, from 100 yards out of the gate, I was locked back against him once he established position in, a, in the three-path or four-path. And I didn't let him run until my arms gave out. <laughs> well, Dirk, Tom Durkin does mention in the call that you had a really hard hold on him early. He, he, he actually picked that up there. Yeah. Um, wow. Wow, that's, that's incredible. The, the feeling in my fingers was going away. And I thought, honestly, I thought I was going to, there was a good chance I would drop my whip when I let him run because I had no feeling oh my in my gosh. fingers anymore. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that'd make you a little nervous then. I, I'm on the best horse here. I hope I don't lose it because I lost the feeling in my fingers. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's how strong he was that day. There was a, a, a couple of occasions he was that strong, and that was one of them. Um, and so middle of the turn, I saw unaccounted for it going through on the rail and, and my arms were getting tired. I was losing feeling in my fingers, so I just let him run. I just, just opened my hands, and I didn't even have to ask him. I just opened my hands, and he just took it. Oh, my I gosh. mean, in wow. a blink. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's something you just don't see as the, the, the fan writer understand, but that's, uh, that's pretty unbelievable. Wow. And so now Cigar made what is now the well-established journey halfway around the globe to the lands from which the thoroughbred bloodlines originated. Candidly, for whatever reason, this race never registered to me previously. I'm not sure why. Was the coverage from Dubai not then what it is now? Was I busy that day? What it was, I don't know. But I do know when I did my research for this podcast, I was absolutely stunned by the heart and soul showed by Cigar that day. If you've never seen or never watched the replay of the 1996 Dubai World Cup, I strongly suggest you do so. You will see the very definition of greatness on display that day. So he, uh, there's a great victory, obviously. Uh, you know, and it was a great call by Tom Durkin also for the fans here at home. And he, yeah, he, he, he takes a little bit of a rest. He goes in and, and wins the dawn again. Um, and then he goes to Dubai, and this race, I gotta say, really struck me. Um, you know, I, I've watched the Brit, the classic replay many times. I candidly, I, I didn't really remember the Dubai race, to be honest with you. But you know, I'm sure there was no question in your mind about the heart of this horse. But when Soul of the Matter came at him, I think more than a furlong out, he dug in incredibly. Um, I, and I'm sure you were doing something there too. But but that was amazing because. When Soul of the Matter first came at him, it looked like he was going to go by. Yeah, so, so there's a backstory here, too. 
after he won the Don, he, he injured his foot a bit. And Belmont Bill, Bill had to miss a few days training. And it's actually in question if he, if he was even going to go to Dubai. And Sheikh Mohammed had sent his, his representatives over, you know, earlier in the spring, and they had taken everybody out to dinner, the team, the Paulson spot, uh, and just wanted to make sure he was coming. So there was a, a, a lot of expectation from Dubai and probably the racing world for him to be there. So Mod doing the, the masterful job that he does, training horses, um, he got him back. And Cigar wasn't a particularly good workhorse uh, alone. So we paired, we paired him up in company and worked him seven furlongs before he shipped over there, and he worked just like lights out. I mean, for him, he had never worked that well before. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he probably needed it because he had missed some time. So anyway, he goes over there, and um, we get in the race. And, and again, he's drawn far outside, and we're stacked up going down the backside, and he's going to be pretty wide all the way around the turn. But there's really wasn't anything I could do about it. I mean, the, horse, the field was pretty well jammed up. It was like driving in traffic on 95 at rush hour. You know, when you're, you're going <laughs> yeah. like 40, all the cars are jammed up, and, and, and so there's just no room to maneuver. So you are where you are. Knowing that there's a very long stretch, longer than he had ever run on, longer than I had ever ridden on, uh, I just, my, my job was just to try and conserve him until I absolutely had to use him for two reasons. The long stretch, and he had missed some training. So when we passed the quarter pole, which is almost halfway down the stretch, not quite, um, he started to, to ease away from most of the field, and I could, I could hear somebody coming. I didn't know who it was. I, did, I had no idea who it was. Um, but it was obviously soul of the matter, and that's when I had started to ask Cigar. Now, it took him, because I was riding pretty confidently at the time, it took him a little while to re-engage, and soul of the matter was rolling. I mean, mm, he was finishing he was. hard, and he got right up to my eyeballs. Yeah. He could, he could have even uh, poked ahead in front. I don't know. But I could feel Cigar starting to, to move. I could feel the engine running. So I knew I was going to get more. You know, it, it was just going to take him a few strides to do it. So I wasn't particularly worried uh, when soul of the matter ran up to me. And he did engage, and we went, I don't know, probably 100 yards or so, a sixteenth of a mile, you know, locked up, head and head. Like, and it looked like Soul of the Matter was probably going to beat him. But I could feel what Cigar had, and I knew he was going to start to draw away again, and he did. And it was particularly pleasing to me. That's probably my most satisfying race for the horse. Okay. Because when he had gone to Hollywood Park the previous year after Massachusetts, there was, a, there was a lot of catcalling and oh, uh, sure. comments out there from Californians that, who's he been beating, now he has to come out here, and he kicked their ass out there. He did. I mean, he kicked ass and took names. Mm -hmm. So there was still a lot of um, chatter about, well, what's he going to do when a horse looks him in the eye? It, will he be as good as advertised? And that was the defining moment that night. It, it really was. And, and, and that struck me, too. That was the first time, actually, someone had really taken a serious run at him. Um, and you're right. For a while there, for quite a bit, it looked like 
uh, solo man, it's the next the next stride he's going to go by, the next stride he's going to go by, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, he's not he's not going by. Um, you know, so I, I suppose that's where his his mental toughness really kicked in. Yeah, I mean, look, look at I get it uh, because I had just won the race and I went back in the jockstrap and watched the rerun and I thought Solo Matter was going to beat me the way it looked on TV. <laughs> wow. Wow, it, it was. I, I encourage anybody that's listening to really go back and watch that one if they have not, because it was. It, it really struck me when I watched it as, to hold off another horse who's coming hard for that long. Um, that's why we love this sport. To when you watch performances like that, yeah. horses dig and, in. And look at Gary Stevens. Gary Stevens thought he had, and Gary's ridden a, a, a ton of really nice horses, so he, he knows. And he said, he, he said, I thought I had you. I really did, and. Like I said, I get it, and most people would. Mm-hmm. Post-Dubai, Cigar marched on to his date with Destiny, facing some strong contenders along the way. So he, he, he came back from Dubai, Jerry, and like you know, a lot of horses, he needed a, a, a little bit of rest uh, coming back from Dubai. But he ends up now, he goes to the Mass Cap again, Suffolk Downs, actually the largest crowd in Suffolk Downs history, and he carried 16 pounds more than his nearest competitor. And then Arlington, he's, so that's 15 in a row. Arlington sets up this race, the Citation Challenge. Um, right. He has to carry 130 again, and this is against horses like Met Mile winner Honor and Glory, Dramatic Gold, uh, Eltish for Bobby Frankel. So it was set up, you know, the idea was that here's the chance for Cigar to tie Citation's record, but they didn't make it easy on him either. They didn't, they didn't put a, a field of, uh, you know, Joe Lewis uh, cream puffs in there either. No, and, and Nakatani on, on uh, Corey was, uh, was notoriously a, a, a bit of a vengeful rider. Okay. Uh, but look, at it, I was the horse to beat, and he tried to pack me wide, you know, and I get it because, look, at you're, you've, you've got to beat Cigar to win the race, and I understand that. Uh, but you're, as you say, it wasn't easy on him. Um, the riders didn't make it particularly easy, but he ended up winning. Not impressive. He was, he was pretty much tanked at the end. All good things must end, they say. And the games aren't played on paper. They are decided in the arena. What struck me most in talking with Jerry was the pain you could still hear in his voice, the split-second decisions he had to make, and the reaction of Cigar after the race. As someone who still can't fathom why Grady Little left Pedro Martinez in the game, I, and I'm sure any sports fan, can sympathize with the way history can haunt. That, you know, it brings us, obviously, to the Pacific Classic, and I've got a couple of questions about that one, uh, obviously. But the, the first thing I noticed when I watched the Pacific Classic replay, I've been to Del Mar. I've watched races from Del Mar many times. When they opened the starting gate, the roar of the crowd was the loudest I've ever heard at that place. And I don't know if you felt that way also, but I've never heard that place that loud when they opened the gate coming down the stretch the first time. I can't hear it. Okay. Could never hear it. it. Johnny Velasco said the same thing to me. You don't hear it. Yeah. 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 No, we don't hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, trust me, it was, it was very loud for that place. And, and, you know, he ends up, he got carried wide on the first turn. Um, he ended up between horses on the back stretch because I think, like you said, he's the horse to beat, so everyone's going to take a run at him. He goes 109-1 and one for the six furlongs. Do you, was it a case of, was he, was he too keyed up by the crowd noise? Was it just the race no, this, dynamics? No, 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 no. Okay, okay. This, is on, this was on me. This one was on me. Um, look, look, Bill Mott and I had a long conversation about this race because the a month before, I was riding another horse for Paulson and Mott named Jerry, J-E-G-E-R-I. Oh, sure, yeah. Yep. And a horse of Mandela's, Siphon, who was in the race, a brilliant speed horse, beat us in the Hollywood Gold Cup. 
because he got away from us. And he got an easy lead, and Jerry was a pretty good horse, too. Yes, he was. And yep. I could never run him down. So I thought, okay, Bill and I talked about this. I said, I don't think I can let Siphon, you know, get too far away from me. He said, no, I agree. I said, all right, so I, I might have to use Cigar a little bit more early just to stay with him. So that was the plan, leaving the gate, to track in right behind Siphon and, and uh, not get too far behind him. And so we did that, and Nakatani on, maybe he's on Dramatic Gold again, I don't remember, but he locked me, he was trying to lock me in behind Siphon. And we were going fast. Cause, um, and I thought if I, if I back off, and I tuck back in behind Siphon, then Nakatani is going to lock me in, and then Siphon's going to slow down, because his rider knows the slower he can go early, the better chance he has of, of beating me, and I'm going to be in the box for as long as they want me in the box. Mm -hmm. So I decided to keep pushing the issue and stay outside of, of Siphon, but it was at the expense of going, as you say, 109 just to hold my position. I probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, so it was not a surprise that he had nothing left. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I expected to have that conclusion at the end of the race too. And, and he was, he was beaten a couple lengths, but he didn't, you know, I think just to show you what a champion he was, it wasn't like he dropped out of the race or anything either, you know, um, after no, going there. by him. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was still, he was still running. And I, you know, look, and I'm not above it either. Just you know, full disclosure. There have been times when I've been critical of jockeys, but these are game time decisions you have to make too, right? And at a split second. Yeah, but there's only two of us out there, me and Cigar, and um, I'm the guy holding the reins, so it's on me. Uh, now, if I would have decided not to press the issue and then tucked in, and I got locked in there till. Darren Go runs by me, then what's the, the story? I don't know. I, 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 listen, I've run that race in my mind, not, not in the last 10 years, but for, <laughs> for at least 10 years, I ran it over and over and over in my mind. And I just asked him to do something that he couldn't do. And, and look, when you win that many races on a horse, and I see it, the horses don't win that many in a row anymore, but when I, when I see horses do things like that, as a rider, you get to thinking they're bulletproof. And you start thinking, and I started thinking, that there's nothing this horse can't do. And um, every horse has his limits. And, and uh, I asked him to do something that, that he couldn't do, and most horses can't. Well, Jerry, I was going to give you all the excuses you wanted, whether it was the weight or you hated the track. Or, you know, you could have. <laughs> um, listen, if it's any consolation, I wasn't even playing in the game, but... Uh, I my my two brothers will tell you that for at least ten years after the Red Sox defeat in the nineteen eighty six World Series, I thought about that game at least once a week. <laughs> that game six, particularly, at least yeah. once a week. So, um, you know, uh, what you, that's life, I guess, right? That's what's that that's what's going to happen. Um, yeah, that's sports. That that is sports to a T. Yep. And you know what? Here's the, here's the thing. We went back to the barn, and this horse loved peppermint. I always had a peppermint yep. in my hand for him. Um, so we went back to the, the receiving barn after the race. I did after I showered and everything, and I tried to give him a peppermint. He was cooling out, and he wouldn't take it. Oh, so wow. he yeah. was either pissed or disappointed or mad at me or something. Um, I don't profess to be a, a, a horse mind reader, but he was down. He was really down. 
A historical footnote, in finishing 45 lengths behind Darren Go in the Pacific Classic, Luthier Fever earned $500,000 that day, nearly one half of his career earnings. How did he do that, you ask? Well, it turns out he was the only horse who ran in the Santa Anita Handicap, the Hollywood Gold Cup, and the Pacific Classic, a three-race sequence that included a participation bonus in what was deemed at the time the Wells Fargo Series. Woody Allen once said that 80% of success is just showing up. In Luthier Fever's case, it was just under 50%, but on the other hand, you can't argue with $500,000 worth of success. As seemingly all great athletes do, as he prepared for the Breeders' Cup Classic at Woodbine, Cigar bounced back with a powerful performance in the Woodward, even though he was, as Jerry says, on the other side of midnight. Again, you can hear the powerful emotion in Jerry's voice as he talks about the greeting from Cigar supporters back on his home grounds at Belmont Park. He bounced back really strong in the Woodward. He did. We were, yeah. we were in the paddock in the Woodward, and I remember there was a guy holding a sign, and it said, not in our house. <laughs> And it, it kind of chokes me up to this day that, you know, he still had his fans back at Belmont. And he was very powerful that day. I mean, really strong coming back after uh, the Delmont race. And he won very easily. And he, he actually, then he ran in the, in the Gold Cup, uh, just really narrowly defeated by Skipaway there. But again, that was a good field. Louis Couture's was in there, editor's note. Were you... Asking everything, it seems silly in grade one. You were asking everything that day. I had a good trip. He gave me what I thought he had. But if you look back at it, that was a really good horse that beat him. Skip away ended up being, he was a Breeders' Cup Classic winner. I mean, he made $10 million almost, you know. So, um, yeah, that was was a really good horse that beat him that day. And and look, at Cigar at that point, and maybe even in Del Mar, I don't know. Maybe even in Arlington. He was on the on the other side of midnight. You know, it's interesting you say that because uh, we talked about Zenyatta earlier in, in the... I was telling people before the her second Breeders' Cup Classic that uh, I was telling people for a couple months beforehand, th- th- this is between Blame and Zenyatta. There may be other horses in the races, but it's between those two. And I was, I was a huge Blame fan. I was very confident because it was slight, and I don't claim to be this knowledgeable about horses all the time, it was slight, but I felt like that year Zenyatta was taking an extra step to go by horses that she blew by in the previous year. And I felt like that might make all the difference in the world, and it, and it did. And so I was, I was lucky in my prognostication there. But it, you, you do kind of feel like that Cigar had, had maybe just lost a step there in, in that year yeah. as well, it sounds like. No, no, I, I, I knew in the, in the Arlington race that he won, but he, he wasn't dominant like it. He usually was. But the thing was, is, is in the Woodward, he was. The Woodward, he was like the old horse. I mean, mm. that's how dominating he was that day. And in the Gold Cup, he just, he had no excuse. I, I couldn't give him any excuse at all. Um, skip away was just better that day. And finally, his last appearance in Alan Paulson's Racing Silks came at the Breeders' Cup Classic, the first and only Breeders' Cup held outside the United States. He raced bravely, he raced powerfully, but whether it was the trip that day, the many trips and the many races over the years, whatever it was, he had lost that crucial step. It was time for the great one to exit the stage. And then, you know, in Canada, uh, the inside, the rail was golden, and um, it was a golden rail, and I had one opportunity to tuck in going into the first turn. I could have, but I would have had to tuck in behind a horse that was like 100 to 1. Yeah. I don't remember the horse. And I said, God, that's probably the wrong thing to do. So I, I ended up being three wide the entire race, which, in you know, the old cigar, you probably would have overcome it and won. But with all the miles and all the races and all the travel, uh, he couldn't overcome that. 
Oh, and really, he was just beating a nose and a head. Uh, yeah. In, in that I mean, yeah. really good. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned about the gold rail because the, the fourth place finisher was actually a, 104 to 1 and had the lead at the top of oh. the stretch. And he, he, would, he was running on the rail the whole way. Right. And, and I was drawn further on. And I, just, I, I couldn't see myself having to take Cigar back to tuck him in to get into a place that, that the horse might die in front of him. And I only had like two, two strides to decide whether to do it or not. And I decided not to do it. The great ones deserve not only our lifelong appreciation, but a great send-off also. In Cigar's case, he got both. As Jerry talked about his visits with Cigar, it was easy to visualize the pure bliss and satisfaction that must have come at such moments. You can still hear them in Jerry's voice. So, you, you know, I think you pretty much said, Jerry, you felt like uh, whether it was a stud decision or not, he was he was ready for retirement, I think, at that point. Right. You know, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't the dominant horse. He wasn't 95, no, that's for sure. So, um, still, go ahead. It, go ahead. If he had had the best trip, he probably was going to win those races. Um, he just couldn't take the worst of it like he had been most of his career and still win. That's all. So, I mean, he proved to be um, infertile at stud, and he ended up going to the horse park. And I, I remember when I talked with uh, Kate Tweedy uh, about Riva Ridge and Secretariat, she mentioned that Riva always remembered uh, Mrs. Tweedy, Penny, when she came to Claiborne to visit. Did you ever get, get a chance to visit Cigar at the horse park? Okay, so we, I'm going to stop you here. The best ride of my life, maybe after the Dubai race, was after the Breeders' Cup in 96. Because Cigar was invited to Madison Square Garden to parade for the uh, horse show. So I rode at Aqueduct in the seventh race, Vermont, and then I got in my car and drove over um, to Belmont and got in the van. Mm -hmm. And Mott and I and, and uh, the horse and the assistants and the grooms, we all rode in the horse van from Belmont to Manhattan, to Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got on in there underneath and rode out and paraded in the Madison Square Garden to a full house. Mm. And that was maybe the coolest experience I've ever had. Oh, man. Oh, man. That must have been that incredible. Was, that was fun. Yeah. And I would imagine and Cigar was soaking it all up, too. Yeah, I think that's tranquilized him, actually. Uh, <laughs> <because> <laughs> well, he soaked something up. Yeah. <laughs> the racehorse, but... Um, yeah. He was so cool. It, it was it was so much fun. So yeah, that was like wasn't the last ride, but it was pretty close to it because I used to visit him at the horse park, as you said. And uh, it, although it was against the rules, um, they helped me up on him a couple times, and I rode him around. No no saddle, just just bareback. Yeah, I used to visit him every year, every year. Of course, I wasn't about to let Jerry go with talking about a most improbable victory. He shared some very funny anecdotes about that day. For my part, I got to tell Jerry how, in that very same race, he unwittingly saved the Duncliffe family from a discussion that would have undoubtedly raged on for years. And I won't be spoiling anything about this story, but will instead be filling in a key blank when I tell you that, in classic OTB betting parlor fashion, the Duncliffe boys found out that that day, a certain OTB betting parlor in downtown Manhattan was closed. On the biggest racing day of the year, the OTB betting parlor closed. As I said, classic. But let's get on to the tale of this classic. Yeah. You know, our mutual friend, Morty Mittendahl, uh, I did promise him I would tell you my Arkong story, um, although I, I will grant I will grant right up yours uh, up front. Yours is going to be much more interesting. But um, <laughs> so back in 1993, um, you know, it's Breeders' Cup Day, and um, 
I think it must have been actually a pick seven that they had going on that day, starting with the sprint and ending with the classic. And I was interested in playing. I was not a I was not a big budget horse player, but uh, you know, picking seven in a row, why not? Why not take a shot at it, right? So um, there was no internet wagering at the time. You had to go to the track to to bet it. Um, in my case, that was Suffolk Downs, and my kids at the time were. I think my oldest was maybe you know 12 years old. Uh, my wife worked on the weekends, so Suffolk was not really the place I wanted to take the kids to when it was going to be filled with hardcore gamblers, right? So I was talking to my younger brother earlier in the day, that day. He lived in New York City, and I, I kind of mentioned my dilemma to him. And he says, well, Bill, tell me what horses you want to bet. I'll go to the OTB. I'll make the bet for you. You know, give me what, no, Let me know what your selections are. Send me a check. We'll be all set. So I said, great. So I gave him my selections. It was... It was maybe an eighteen, maybe a twenty-four dollar ticket, right? Um, as I said, I was a, I was a, a not a big better. I didn't have a big budget, so the first race, Cardmania, roars down the lane. I had singled him, and I was all right. I'm off to a great start. Um, the juvenile fillies, I had used both Phone Chatter and Sardula, so they ran one two. I was in great shape there. Um, we get to the distaff. I'm watching the race at home, and. I saw Eddie D actually drop the whip on Hollywood Wildcat, and I was like, oh, no, I'm going to get beat here. But he, he basically hand-whipped the horse across the finish line. So now I'm starting to get excited, right? And I'm starting to be a little superstitious as well. I'm sitting in the same chair in the same place before every race. My drink is in the same place because um, I'm starting to feel it a little bit. Um, and it's about 10 minutes or so before the start of the mile. The phone rings, and it's my younger brother. He's clearly had a couple of drinks. He's in tears, and he's... He's telling me he didn't make the bet. And I, I said, you know, we're brothers, so we do this kind of thing. I'm like, John, stop. Don't joke with me about this. This is not funny. You know, cut it out. And, and finally I realized, oh, my God, he's serious. He, he didn't get the bet down. Uh, and I was, I, I was stunned. I, I just I didn't know what to say. I kind of remember trying to talk him down a little bit. Uh, but inside, you know, I was upset because I thought I'm sitting on something here. And he said he'd help me out, and it's not happening now. So <laughs> I... I actually just kind of dropped the phone. I don't think I remember really hanging it up, but because um, the the mile was getting ready to start, um, and my wife had walked in the room and she look, she loves me, supports me. She's a rock, goes to the track with me, but she doesn't really know horse racing, and she could tell something was wrong. She looks at me and says, "What's up?" And then I told her, uh, and she, <laughs> she I never forget that she looks at me. And she says, "Well, maybe you'll lose this one." <laughs> uh, do you have any brothers, by the way? Do you have brothers? I have two sisters. Okay. Well, uh, so maybe it's unique to brothers, but I, I gave her a death stare like you would not believe. Maybe I'll lose. What are you talking about? I actually, in an odd way, uh, I wanted to win, even though I wanted to lose because, and maybe this is just the sick Bill Duncliffe, but I, I, I kind of wanted to have this to hold over him, I guess, right? So <laughs> the mile's up, and, and Lore was in the 14-hole that day, and I knew enough about the sport that I knew if, Lore got over and got to the rail. The race was going to be over, uh, even with the bad post. And before they were even halfway through the clubhouse turn, Laura's over on the rail, and I turned to my wife, and I said, this race is over. And she said, really? I said, oh, yeah. No, believe me, it's, it's over. So I'm four for four now. Um, and it really, the only, well, other than later, the, the only mistake I made was coming up in the juvenile. Um, you know, you were an East Coast-based rider. I was in love with DeHair. Um, he had done tremendous things that year. Um, I really discounted Brocco, even though I should have been smart. He was West Coast based, you know, um, I should have recognized that that was, uh, going to come into play. And, and, and so DeHair ends up being badly beaten and I'm 
out kind of because you know my wife says to me well you're out you don't have to worry about it anymore my my brother called me and said hey you don't have to worry about it anymore and i said whoa whoa, wait a second they still pay on six out of seven here don't <laughs> don't walk away from me yet so um i had singled coda shan on the turf i love that horse he wins so now now we come to the classic um i think if i recall correctly is the only race where i played more than one horse besides in the juvenile fillies and they hit the top of the stretch I've got Bertrando. He's on the lead. I've got Kissing Chris. He's coming on the outside. Marketry is fading at that point, but I've got the leader and the closer, um, and I thought I was in great shape, but now you come into the picture here. How, how did you end up getting the mount on our car? How did I get it? Yeah. Because Mike Smith had to write Devil is Due again. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Devil is Due strikes again. Yes. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, that's uh, that, that that horse cost Mike a lot, I think. Um, <laughs> well, so, that's what that's one you remind him of then. I'll bet. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I forgot to tell you. I forgot to tell you that after between the Gulfstream Park handicap in '95 and the Oakland race, mm-hmm. um, after the Gulfstream Park handicap, I had gone to to New Orleans to work. A horse called Concern, who I'd won the classic mm. on. Yep. Um, the the year before. Yep. Yeah, the year yep. before. And um, so now I've got a dilemma: Do I ride Concern or do I ride Cigar? Because they're both heading for the Oakland handicap. And um, my agent calls me and he says, "Hey, listen, you better call Dickie Small because I think we're in trouble. I think we're losing the mount on Concern." I said, what do you mean? Mm. I just won the Breeders' Cup Classic on him like two months, three months ago. And he said, yeah, something with the work. You didn't work in right or something. I said, oh, come on. So I called him up, and he said, yeah, you're off. And I said, why am I off? Mm. And he said, because um, I'm going to put Mike Smith on it. you you got that fourth cigar, and I know you're going to end up riding him. So um, I'm going to put Mike on it. And I said, all right. And so it was going to be a hard decision for me to make, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, uh, again, the Mike Smith, Jerry Bailey, on again, off again, you know, horse. <laughs> You know, musical horses, and so it's, it's anyway. So oh, that's great. It's a strange game. <laughs> so now I don't think you spoke French, and I, 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 the way I heard it, I believe the connections didn't speak any English. You you really didn't get any instructions in the paddock or anything. You just oh, I had no idea. Yeah, I had no idea. I was I was a huge student of the racing form and video, mm-hmm. and there was no video on the horse because that was just the early days of being able to get yes. race replays. Yep, yep, and. You know, from reading the form, that the taglines from European horses, they only say, you know, well oh, back, yeah. Yeah. you know, finished, back, you know, they didn't give you any, no, no fractional don't. time. Yep. And so I just had a basic idea that, you know, he was a comfort behind horse. That's it. Okay. And okay. I said, well, shit, I don't know. And I'll ask the trainer. I'll ask Fab. And I couldn't find him in the paddock. And it was like a thousand people in there. He couldn't find him. So I said, okay, well, whatever. I'll ask the room. And uh, so I asked the groom, and he started just telling me all this shit in French, and I didn't understand. <laughs> you know. And so, um, so I'm on the horse, and we, we looped around, and we're heading out, you know, from the paddock to the to the tunnel to go out on the track. And all of a sudden, I hear Jerry, Jerry, and I looked around, and it was Fab, Andre Fab, the trainer. Okay. And I said, Oh, what a relief, man! He's going to tell yeah. me how to ride this horse. And he said, Good luck. That's all he said. <laughs> So I was I was on my own on that one. Oh. Well, I I noticed watching him uh, the the race that you actually um, steadied slightly into the turn uh, as after 
advancing up the rail on the backstretch. Um, and, and then you had to split horses. At, at what point did you say to yourself, I've got a chance at this thing? Well, you know, look, at, so my mindset, you know, warming up, I looked over, he's 99 to 1 on the board. I'm thinking, oh, God, I don't want to be embarrassed here. <laughs> um, and it wasn't a good day for me. I, didn't, I hadn't won any races. So I said, I'm just going to take him back. I'm going to go to the rail and try not to come in last by, like, 100 yards. So um, I took him back, went to the rail. And so, like, as we turned up the backside, he's taking me into the race now. Okay. And I'm thinking, actually, oh, yeah. okay, I'm not going to be embarrassed here. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is okay. He's all right. So then I get up behind a horse called Izud. And I don't remember who was riding him, but he reached down right before we hit the far turn, and he started petting his horse on the left shoulder. You can see it if you watch the rerun. Okay. okay. The jock started petting his horse on the shoulder with his left hand. And so that, that um, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this guy's happy with his horse. I'm riding behind him, and I'm locked and loaded, so I'll, I'm going to hit the board probably. And so as we turned for home, you know, all I needed was a spot, and I knew right then. I said, ah, Bertrando's not going to be strong in the last eighth of a mile. I know that. He's on the lead. And I, I knew right then I had a really good chance of winning. I, I didn't expect him to explode like he did. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite a good surprise. <laughs> so you, when you crossed on, when, I mean, because he won, you know, going away, uh, were, you, were you laughing to yourself when you went under the wire? Were you just shaking your head? What, what, uh, what were you so thinking? So I, I didn't know. I don't know. I don't even know what I thought, but I remember galloping out, and, like, we know as riders, you know, we're looking around through the stretch, and if the horse runs by us, we pretty much know who it is because we figured the race out, mm-hmm. and we know who the, the contenders are. And, and But when a horse beats you and you have no idea who he is, you're thinking, who the hell is that? <laughs> and um, that's what Stevens asked me, galloping out, and he says, who the hell is that? <laughs> He didn't say hell. He's, you know, he's yeah. talking that far. But uh, he was as shocked as I was, probably. <laughs> well, I was saying who the hell was that, too. But, uh, look, thankfully, our Kong was responsible for eliminating any difficult family conversations over the years. It actually turned out <laughs> the way it should have. But uh, So I thought your story was going to be different. I thought you were going to be one of the hundreds of people that told me they bet on our Kong. Oh. Because if all the people that told me that they bet on our Kong, actually bet on him, he'd have never paid as much as he paid. <laughs> that's, that's like the number of people who went to Ted Williams' last game at Fenway Park, too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Same, same time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Thanks, Jerry, for a memorable discussion about the journey and the ride you shared with the Great Cigar. Join us next week, and we'll share more great racing history with you on the Can Do Horse Racing Podcast.